0: There are crimes, every day, across the globe. 911, what's your emergency? Murders, homicides, burglaries, robberies, assaults, and so much more. Here, we will be telling you the true stories about those involved in homicides, murders, burglaries, robberies, heists, and many more crimes. So sit back, try to relax, and let's get into the show. This is Chilling Ice Cold Crime. Hello, welcome to season one, episode number two. Hope you guys are having a fantastic Thursday. Hello, it's time for another episode of Crimes here today. I got homicides on the way to you, and I got information about a heist. That's right, you picturing GTA or something like with a heist? Yes, I got got a heist information today. Um, Again, welcome to Chilling Ice Cold Crime. I'm your host, Austin, and I'll be giving you the details and looks into true crime stories here at Chilling Ice Cold Crime. So, hello and a happy Thursday. Let's get into today's stories. First up on our list, we have the body in room 348. The corpse at the Elegante Hotel stymied in the Beaumont, Texas, police. They could find no motive for the killing of popular oil and gas man Greg Flanken and no explanation for how he had received his strange internal injuries. Bent on tracking down his killer, Flanken's widow Susie turned to provide investigator Ken Brennan the subject of a previous Vanity Fair story. Once again, As Mark Bowden reports, it was Brennan Sleuthering that cracked the case. Greg Flanken traveled light and lived tidy. After so many years on the road, he would leave his rolling suitcase open on the floor of his hotel room and use it as a drawer. Dirty clothes went on the closet floor, shirts he wanted to keep unwrinkled hung above, toiletries were in the pockets of a cloth folding case that hooked into the towel rack in the bathroom. At the end of the day, he would slide off his warm brown leather boots and line up by the suitcase, drop his faded jeans to the floor, and put on lightweight cotton pajama bottoms. Most evenings, he never left the room. He would crank up the air conditioner. He liked a cool room at night and sit in the bed leaning back on two pillows propped up against the headboard considerately to avoiding soiling the bedspread he would lay out a clean white hand towel on which he placed his ashtray cigarette pack lighter blackberry the tv remote and a candy bar he smoked and broke off candy bits while watching tv this is where greg was on the evening of wednesday september 15th 2010 in room 348 of the mcm elegante hotel in Beaumont, Texas, lounging, smoking, snacking on a Reese's crispy crunchy bar, sipping root root beer, and watching Iron Man 2. He missed the ending. Greg was accustomed to solitary nights as a young man he had worked as a chief engineer on ocean-going vessels, spending months at sea. In middle age he had reinvented himself as a landman a familiar occupation in South Texas, easing the exploitation of mineral rights on private property for gas and oil companies. Slender with a close crop white beard and the weathered skin of a lifelong outdoorsman, he had partnered with his brother Michael in a thriving oil land leasing business based in this small city east of Houston. Every Monday morning he would make a two-hour drive in his pickup from Lafayette, Louisiana heading west on Interstate 10 through scruffy Gulf Shore farmland broken only by cell phone towels towers, oil derricks, and billboards advertising motel chains, boyu restaurants, adult superstores, and other local attractions. It took him to the stink of the big Conoco Phillips refinery at Lake Charles, a forest of piping, giant tanks, and towering chimneys. The hotel was just off the cloverleaf outside Beaumont. His company rented him a room in the cabana, a three-story wing that wrapped around a small swimming pool framed by potted palms. That Wednesday night, watching his movie, Greg got an email from his wife, Susie, shortly after 7. Susie was using a computer program to file for a tax extension. After she reported her progress, he wrote back, You're doing good, babe. At some point during the loud, computer generated showdown at the end of the film, amid all the fake violence, Greg was struck from nowhere with a re- very real and shattering blow. A blow so violent it would blow a man with pain. He managed to get off the bed and move toward the door before he fell. Legs splayed and face first. He was probably dead by the time his face hit the green rug. Now, it's supposed to be a natural causes thing. The following morning Susie Flaniken called Greg's office. Husband and wife usually spoke every morning, but he hadn't called. He wasn't answering his phone. When he failed to turn up at the office, two of his coworkers drove over to the hotel and knocked on his door. There was no answer, so they got the hotel manager to open it. Their alarm calls brought an ambulance and the Beaumont police. They found a middle-aged man dead in the rug, prone and doubled over, a spent cigarette cupped delightfully between two stiff fingers of his left hand. Room 348 was stuffy and exceptionally warm. The man's skin color had gone grayish-blue. There was a wet spot at the crotch of his blue pajamas, but that wasn't unusual. Detective Scott Apple showed up a little more than an hour later. He is a short and very fit man with graying hair that he wears combed straight up in spikes. He is all cop. His wife had been a cop. He met her on the job. He was one of the assault team leaders in the department's SWAT team. He is one of those men who never stop working. But there was little here to interest him. No sign of a break-in or struggle. Nothing disturbed in the room. No blood or obvious wounds. And Flanagan's wallet was still in the back pocket of his jeans and had a stack of $100 bills in it so robbery wasn't an issue. Those staying in nearby rooms had heard nothing, as Apple questioned the neighbors, he told them it was probably a natural causes thing. Sad. He poked around Flang bags, looking mostly for pills. Some clue to his collapse, there were none. Susie and Michael later told him that Greg never went to a doctor. He was a stubbornly independent man, suspicious of authority, and unmoved by the modern passion for health and fitness. He did not exercise. He had chain-smoked his entire adult life and had the nagging cough to prove it. He neither drank nor ate to excess, but did both freely. It was easy to conclude that his choices had simply caught up with him. Susie was almost ready to believe it. She was shocked and grief-stricken, but she accepted that. For Greg, sudden death was a possibility. In fact, she took some solace in it. He had checked out on his own terms. Many times, she heard him remark, upon hearing of someone dying suddenly, lucky bastard, that's how I want to go. And so, he had. At the hotel, the police saw the death as a routine. A photographer snapped pictures to make a record of the scene, and the body was driven by a transport service to the Jefferson County Medical Examiner for an autopsy. The only mystery here appeared to be medical, and it was likely a minor mystery at that. Dr. Tommy Brown had a time-test method. It took him 45 minutes to conduct a post-mortem exam, inspecting a body inside and out, measuring and weighing organs, all the while describing what he found and noting the metrics that fleshed out of the official form. He was all business, crisp, efficient, and confident. Brown was thin and bald on top and had a spray of untruly white hair on the sides that gave off a mad scientist vibe. He did everything fast. He even talked fast. He was a local character part of the legal landscape in Jefferson County, and a respected one. Where death was concerned in this corner of Texas, Dr. Tommy Brown's word was law. The circumstances of Greg Flanken's death, as reported, were unremarkable. On the tail before him was a 55-year-old Caucasian male who appeared to be in decent shape. After methodological inspection, the only marks Brown found on the body were a one-inch abrasion on his left cheek, where his face had hit the rug and curiously a half-inch laceration on his scrotum now that was interesting the sac itself was discolored and around the wound was a small amount of edema fluid the bruising had spread up through the groin area and across the hip the right hip something had hit him and it hit him hard The story his body told grew more intriguing when Brown opened the front of the torso. He discovered a surprising amount of blood and extensive internal damage. A certain amount of partly digested food had been torn from his intestines. The doctor found small lacerations there, and on the stomach and liver, as well as two broken ribs and a hole in the right atrium of his heart. The condition of his insides reflected severe trauma. Flaniken had been beaten to death or crushed. Brown concluded that the wound to his genitals likely has been co- had been caused by a hard kick. He had also taken a blow of the chest so severe it had caused lethal damage. He would have bled out in less than 30 seconds. On the official form next to manner of Death, Brown wrote Homicide. The real question is, who done it? When he, got, when he got this surprising news, Detective Apple called Brown immediately for an explanation. The doctor told him that the man in 348 had suffered the kind of severe internal injuries he was more used to seeing in crash victims or in someone found under a heavily fallen object. There are not that many murderers in Beaumont. Greg was one of the ten that year, which was about average. Most are not mysterious. Detective work was usually a matter of doing the obvious interviewing, the drunk boyfriend with gunpowder on his hands, or finding the neighbor drug dealer who was owed money. A case like this was once on a career event. If you enjoy working a stubborn whodunit, which Apple does, then this was one of an exciting challenge. But the problem with the hard cases is that they are indeed hard. Over the next weeks and months, Apple chased down every angle he could imagine to explain the death of Greg Flanagan. But about six months into it he was stuck the physical evidence didn't add up unless greg had been beaten to death elsewhere and his body had been returned to the room and carefully placed on the rug nothing about the scene added up to a crime how does a man get beaten so severely that ribs crack inner organs tear and the heart ruptures all without significant damage to his torso Other than the bruising and that the cut at his crotch, Flaniken's outer body showed no signs of a beating. And how could such a rumble have taken place in the hotel room without a thing being toppled or even disturbed? Without anyone in adjacent rooms hearing a thing? And there was no answer to all the important question, why? Greg appeared to have no enemies. Apple talked a lot to his wife Susie. She had been in her twenties, a singer in a rock band when she met Greg. She clearly adored him. Susie was a delightfully offbeat Southern Belle. buxom and pretty and warm and oh so differential, but also, in that time, honored Southern Way, stubborn as a tick. She was heartbroken and furious at the same time. Greg was the nicest man she had ever met. He was so nice she'd married him twice. First as kids and then after parting ways for a number of years, Again in middle age. When Susie first called him again after the separation, he said, I've been waiting for you to call. They had been married the second time for fifteen years. His brother and co-workers said he had universally liked in their company. His life with the elegante rarely intersected with anyone else's. He went to his room early in the evening and usually stayed there by himself until morning. Greg had never been seen down at the bar, he did not socialize or drink a lot or pick up women. So this was not a drunk. This was not a philanderer or a man who gets into fights. This was a decent, honorable, smart, and successful man whom people liked. The sort of man nobody would murder, yet somebody had. Through the fall in the winter of 2010, Apple pursued a number of possibilities. Maintenance records showed that at some point early in the evening of his death while cooking prepackaged popcorn in the microwave, Greg had inadvertently blown an electrical circuit. The outage had affected the adjacent room, 349, and the rooms directly underneath. Greg had called the front desk to report the outage and confessed his role sheepishly to the man who had come up to reset the breaker. This led to two theories. The first involved, sex. The elegante maintenance man happened to have a rap sheet as a sex offender. Might the puncture wound of the scrotum and internal injuries have been caused by a long screwdriver? Some sort of bizarre and kinky assault? Apple spent a lot of time talking to the maintenance man and looking into his background, but this theory never advanced beyond wild suspicion. The second theory involved a group of union electricians staying at the Elgante, El a number of whom have been in the room next door, room 349. On the night Greg died, they were in town for an extended stay doing a job for an oil company. At night, they tend to assemble in one another's rooms to drink. What if some of them have been partying next door and their electricity went out? Might one of them or more have knocked on Greg's door, perhaps drunk and annoyed, exchanged words with him and then assaulted him in the hallway? Could Greg badly beaten have returned to his room and then collapsed? Some of the electricians have been questioned on the day the body was found, but none of them said that they had any interaction with the man in 348. Nine days after Greg's death, Apple and a colleague returned to the third floor of the Cabana wing to question some of the the same men again. Apple was wearing a hidden video camera. The men they encountered were friendly and appropriately curious. What happened to that guy, anyway? asked Lance Mueller. A sharp-featured man with dark, thinning hair, dressed in a t-shirt and blue jeans. Mueller was the man who registered in room 349 along with a roommate, Tim Steinmetz. Heck, I don't know, Apple said, honestly. That's what I'm trying to find out. It was almost like something fell on him or something, We're just trying to see if somebody heard something, or maybe if someone knows somebody heard something, or maybe if somebody messed with him. Mueller and Steinmetz had nothing to offer. The two electricians said they thought that they heard the man in the next room coughing when they returned from the bar. Mueller seemed as confused as Apple was about the idea that something had crushed the man. There's nothing in these rooms heavy enough. The electricians hand over their driver's licenses and gave Apple their cell phone numbers. They would be in town for a few more months if anything came up. They're happy to help. Weeks went by. Months went by. Apple worked any theory he could imagine. He considered the possibility that Susie had her husband killed. He considered Michael Flanghiken, Greg's brother, and partner. There was nothing that even hinted at either person. Who doesn't love a mystery solved? It creates order from disorder. Solves our ache for more moral balance. An unsolved mystery is like a stone in your shoe. That is where the case of the body in room 348 was by the end of 2010. Scott Apple was stymied, hoping to unearth something new. In November, the family had put up a $50,000 reward. It produced nothing. Michael hired a private detective from Houston, a former FBI agent. Apple met with the man and reviewed the case. That was the last he saw of him. The matter of Greg Greg Flaniken was bound for the cold files. It would be just another sad box of notes and evidence stored in the Jefferson County Courthouse. But, a fresh pair of eyes. Ken Brennan took Susie's call on the golf course. She was surprised that he picked up the phone himself. Ken speaking. Oh my gosh! You don't have a secretary? Susie asked. She was flustered. The detective had answered on the first ring. She could barely get the story out. Greg's death, the coroner's finding, the dead end. He asked her to send him some files. He'd take a look. She said she had been feeling under the weather, but she would try to pull together what she had. Pronto. And send it off to him. Well, said Brennan, You need to, Ethan, take care of yourself." Like everything Brennan says, this came in a thick New York accent, in a voice that sounds like it is strained through a cubic yard of gravel. It was no B.S. you-better-listen-to-me command that was all the more startling, because he had said something tender. It endeared him to Susie immediately. Brennan is a former Long Island cop and DEA special agent, who now makes a good living as a private detective in Florida. That's why he was on the golf course in February. He is pushing 60, still solid and always tan and stylish in the South Florida manner. Blue-eyed, thick-necked, and ruggedly handsome, he is partial to lightweight short sleeve shirts that show off his torso and his big arms. He wears flashes of gold at the neck and wrist and Irish rings on several fingers. Brennan's hair is mostly white now and is combed straight back on the sides and straight up in the front in a low-key pump powder cocky but dignified. Months earlier, not long after Greg was killed, a young lawyer friend Kia Sherman had told Susie and Michael about Brennan. Sharing Susie's frustration with the investigation, she had hit upon the strategy of filing a lawsuit against the hotel, as a means of pursuing the probe privately. She had read an article by me in this magazine, not by me, but by these people who were writing this, this article, The Case of the Vanishing Blonde, which was let out in December 2010, detailing Brennan's remarkable success in resolving a 2005 cold case in Miami now when the investigation seemed hopeless sherman brought up brennan again if you want to do something she urged susie you have got to call this guy the one i told you about just find him brennan can be readily found the internet and is asked to take more cases than he can handle People come up to him with unsolved murders and disappearances. He takes these people seriously and handles them gently. When he reads a file, he is looking for a case that intrigues him, but also one where he thinks he might be able to accomplish something. Accomplish something. Hmm. I ain't in the business of giving people false hopes, he says. The Flood Icon case appealed to him because of the mystery but also because there were so many avenues to explore. Greg's family and co-workers, hotel guests, the maintenance man. To Detective Apple none of these leads seemed fresh anymore. To Brennan they were all new and potentially promising. He knew that a fresh pair of eyes was perhaps the most valuable thing he brought to an investigation. Brennan visited Lafayette in April. He worked Susie over first, asking her a lot of hard questions about their relationship, about Greg's faithfulness, about insurance arrangements, satisfying himself that the wife had no clear motive to have him killed. Let me ask you one more thing, said Brennan. Was there anything about the crime scene that didn't seem right to you, that seemed off? Susie told him that she was surprised that the room was so warm when Greg's co-workers entered it the following morning. Her husband liked to crank up the AC at night. Then Brennan went home and made arrangements for the second trip to Beaumont. Apple came out to a sports bar late to meet him. The two men ate and talked. Brennan told Apple what he always tells the cops he meets in his work. Listen, I'm not a maverick. I don't go doing things half-cocked. If I decide we're going to do this, we're going to do it as a team. There's nothing I'm going to do that you're not going to know about, and there should be nothing that you're going to do that I don't know about. That's one thing I won't do is F up your case. I've been doing this for a long time, but I always know that you're the guy in charge here, so it's your case. Part of what was going on was Brennan checking out Apple. I don't want to work with somebody I don't like, he told me. He prides himself on being able to read people very quickly. He liked the Beaumont detective. It was mutual as Apple will put it later Ken has good people skills as time continues by they return back to room 349 there was no mistaking what they found on the wall Brennan stood alongside a small neat hole in the wall that had been patched with a daub of faintly pink filler that turned out to be dry toothpaste he measured its height against his hip then walked back to 348 and measured the indentation. They both lined up. A bullet had gone through the wall. The small, neat hole in 349 marked its entry. The larger hole in 348, its exit. Beaumont's crime scene investigators carefully excavated both holes and shined a laser through. The trajectory pointed straight up to the bed where Greg had been sitting, smoking, eating candy, and watching his movie. Iron Man 2. Brennan said this mother was shot. Dr. Brown was not convinced. He had examined the man's body from head to toe, cut him open, inspected his inner organs one by one, and reversed the expectations of the police. With precision and with the insight of years, he had determined that Greg Flaniken did die not from natural causes, but from a severe beating. Now they wanted to tell him his, that his careful and professional observations were wrong, that he had missed, of all things, a bullet wound? Brennan volunteered to do the talking. After he and Apple had found the bullet hole and traced the trajectory, the answer to the mystery of Greg's death was, he believed, clear. But in order to act in order to bring Greg's killer or killers to justice, they would have to get the coroner to rewrite his findings. You could not argue in court that a defendant had shot someone if the medical examiner's office had concluded that the victim had not been shot. Brown's office was a mess. Papers, files, books everywhere. Every available surface was buried, even the floor. They cleared away space on two chairs to sit down, and when they mentioned that they were working the Flynn case, the doctor asked, oh, did you catch the guy that beat him up? No we're not there yet said brennan and he then started to explain what they had discovered trying to approach the subject delicately brown quickly got the picture you're trying to tell me that this man was shot he said i'm telling you he wasn't shot he could see where this was heading and he flatly refused to order the body exhumed exclamation is a pain in the a it is expensive destroyed the family and a heck of a lot of work and in this case as it happens it was impossible since the body had been cremated the ovens were hot enough to destroy metal fragments listen doc brennan proposed let's just take out the photos from the autopsy and go through them and see what we find brown humored them as they looked through the photographs passing them back and forth across the desk brennan pointed out things What about this here, he said, indicating a spot of damage. Yes, that's the liver. And what about this here? Yeah, that's the intestines. Brennan knew what he was looking at. The bullet had entered Greg's scrotum and torn up through him. The skin of the scrotum was soft and pliable, and it had folded over the entry wound, making it less obvious what it was. The internal injuries traced the bullet's fatal trajectory, Brennan asked, Doc, could all of this damage have been done besides blunt force trauma? Could a bullet cause the same? Yes, it could, but that's not what happened here. This man was beaten. Okay, Doc, but could it have? Brennan found something in a photo that supported his argument. It looked like a track. You could get the same thing from being beaten, Brown explained. Then they got to the heart. Brown passed the photo to the detectives. Doc, Brennan said, what? This, that's a bullet hole. Brown took the photo. What? Brennan pointed, that is a bullet hole. Brown explained that sometimes when a man is kicked or hit with a blunt object in the chest, it is the right atrium that normally bursts. Doc, that is a bullet hole. Brown looked again. Yeah, that's a bullet hole. After a long moment, he added, the media is going to kill me on this. Jim Steinmetz must have been feeling pretty okay about this meeting with the Texas cops. Getting called had been a shocker. It was more than seven months since he and Lance Mueller had come home from the job in Beaumont. Now two cops from down there had come all the way to Wisconsin to see him and question him about the guy who had died next door. And they walked through the evening asking a lot of questions, with Steinmetz answering diligently, trying to remember every detail, leaving out the part about the gun, of course. But the detectives had not pushed him at all. "'You heard that the guy next door to you died,' asked the older one. "'The big man with the white hair comes strip in the front, Ken Brennan.' "'We did hear that,' said Steinmetz, "'but we really don't know for sure what the heck was going on. "'We had no idea.' We didn't hear no commotion next door, no and no nothing. That's why this is all kind of weird. Brandon Apple took notes, then Apple carefully wrote out Steinmetz's statement. And that's it, huh? the electrician asked. That's it, said Apple. You guys flew all the way here for that? Brandon said Steinmetz to go through a statement, read it out loud, and make any corrections he wanted. Steinmetz noticed that Apple had put down that he was an apprentice, so he changed to Journeyman. A few other little things, he initialed all the places where he made a change. Then they brought in a local cop to notarize the statement right there in front of him. So Steinmetz was feeling pretty good when he stood up to go. Is that it, he asked. Hang on a second, said Brennan. His tone was different now. Harsh. It was until you signed that statement. Now you've got a problem. Okay, said Steinmetz, startled. Uh, He sat down again. Now tell us what really happened said Brennan because we know what happened because now you're gonna to go to jail with him. Do you wanna to go to jail with Lance? Why am I going to jail with Lance? You just made a false police report. That's why said Brennan. Tim we know what happened said Apple speaking more gently. We know everything that happened down there and I realized you were trying to be noble and protect a friend but you are about to get your whole family in a bind. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. So just tell us. What happened, said Brennan. Out came the whole story, cooperated later, that same day, June 1st, 2011, in an interview with Trent Pisano, who had been in three forty nine with them. Between the two accounts, the following scenario emerged. They had been drinking beer, Mueller asked Passano to fetch a bottle of whiskey from his car, and to also bring up his pistol, a 9 millimeter Ruger. When Pisano returned, Mueller took out the handgun and, to the other's alarm, started playing with it. He pointed at Steinmetz, who dropped to the floor and cursed at him, and he was pointing it in Pisano's direction. At the foot of the bed, when it went off, Pisano thought for a second that they hadn't been hit, but they turned to see a hole in the wall behind him. Mueller freaked out, they both said. Mueller bundled up the gun and took it back out to his car. When he returned, Pisano had left for his own room, disgusted. Mueller and Steinmetz went downstairs to the bar. Steinmetz said they had not known for sure that anyone was staying in the next room door until, as he remembered, they heard someone in the room coughing very late after midnight when they came back from the bar. He held nothing back. Steinmetz's second statement, the truthful one, laid out the whole thing. It was good to get it off his chest. When he and Mueller had seen the police at room 348 the next morning and had seen the gurney, they were disturbed, he told Brennan. I thought he had killed that guy." The only detail that they didn't fit was this business of hearing a cough behind the closed door of room 348 when the two returned from the bar. For several reasons, neither Brennan nor Apple was inclined to place much weight on it. If it was true, then Greg had survived the gunshot for far longer than the coroner believed possible, but it did not alter the case of the death. If anything, it made the electrician's failure to check on him or call for help all the more eagerness. More likely is that they heard Greg coughing in the room from the previous evening. They had been in the room next to him that night, too. They were drunk, fixing the cough late on the night. Greg died Was with only the shred of their story that contracted, (laughs) contracted the detective's reconstruction, and they clung to it even though it hardly mattered did anybody knock on the door next door to check on the guy Brennan asked no said Steinmetz I always ask myself if I was in a situation like this you know what would I do and I admit he never finished the thought the detective had something else they wanted him to do hey Lance what's up asked Steinmetz he dialed Mueller on his cell phone Apple and Brennan were recording the conversation not much said Mueller just sitting around Well, I just got back from down there. How'd it go? Well, I told them the whole story, you know, what had happened. They were sticking to there, you know? What's that? You know, the story they were sticking to? That we got home that night, you know, and the guy coughed and whatever? Right. And uh, Steinmetz began to hem and haw, and uh, I was fixing. I was going to leave there then, because your lawyer said it would be okay, right, you know? Right. And then I left there. They said, okay, you know, tell us the truth. So I, you know, I told them the truth. What really happened? There was a long silence on the on the other end. About the gun going off and all that, Miller asked? Yep. What'd they say? Well, that I would be in trouble, you know, if I didn't tell them. Another silence. So what did they say? Not much. I don't know if they're going to get a hold of you or Trent or what the heck they're going to do. Miller sighed heavily. then he groaned. What did you mean by that? What did they mean by that? I mean, tell us the truth. Did they say anything about the gun prior to that or what? No. They just said they exactly knew what happened told me to stop lying, they were pretty mad, and then I told them exactly how everything went down, and what really truly happened. Steinman says that Mueller call Apple right away, they probably are going to come and get your butt now, that they know the truth and everything. You should probably try to make some, some kind of effort, you know. The guy, he died from the gunshot. Are you kidding me, Tim? No, I'm not. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Are you serious right now? I'm as serious as a heart attack, Lance. Mueller received it, refused to believe it. For the next minutes of the call, he went around and around with Steinmetz. His lawyer had obtained the autopsy report and assured him that the man had not died of a gunshot wound. The story had been all over the news. It doesn't make sense, he said. If there was a gunshot, if he was killed from, you know, a firearm, they would have said something on the dang news. Mueller had worked hard to convince himself that the accidental gunshot and the death of man 348 were unrelated, and the autopsy report had confirmed it. It doesn't make sense. First, the coroner ruled that it was a heart attack. Then they started saying that something fell on him. There's no way. There's absolutely no way that that guy was killed by a bullet. He asked Steinmetz, how was he doing? How I'm doing, Steinmetz said. Not good. I need to drink some more beers. Mueller apparently applied the same remedy because he later phoned Brennan, clearly intoxicated, and started trying to explain himself. He said he wanted to make a statement. You're drunk, Brennan told him. I suggest you call your attorney. Then the case was closed. Brennan was worried, about the judge started reading the sentence. He had flown to Beaumont on October 29, 2012, to join Susie Flaniken and Scott Apple and a group of Greg's family and friends for the sentencing of Lance Mueller. The electrician had entered a no-contest plea to manslaughter. As Brennan remembered it, the judge began by saying this whole tragedy might be seen just as a terrible accident. Oh, goodness, thought Brennan. Here it goes. Don't tell me this guy is going to get a year or something. But then the judge started cataloging the long list of willfully irresponsible choices that had led to this day. More like it, thought Brennan. The judge gave Mueller ten years, half of what the law allowed. The apology Mueller offered in court, no matter how sincere, came way too late. There was his criminally irresponsible decision to drunkenly play with a gun. As Steinmetz had said, they had suspected from the start that the errant bullet had at least helped kill the man in room 348. Even a heart attack, which had been the first assumption as the police rolled his body out in a gurney, might have been triggered by the gunshot. Then, after the coroner had ruled that Greg died of blunt force trauma, Mueller was happy to accept that something might have crushed him to death, even if it was hard to imagine what Still, he had to accept that something might have crushed him to death, even if it was hard to imagine. I'm sorry, I already read that. Still, he had been worried enough about the gunshot. He had himself patched the hole with toothpaste. He had hidden the gun immediately in his car, then stashed it with a friend for the first few days after the incident, and then had handed over to an attorney for safekeeping before he left Texas. What a huge mistake. If he had come forward at any time prior to Brennan and Apples solving the mystery, which had taken about eight months, it is unlikely he would have been charged with manslaughter, much less have gone to jail. Mueller had gambled from the start that whatever connection he had to Greg's death would never be discovered. The odds were in his favor, too. As it was, even after the connection was made, the county district attorney's office had been reluctant to pr- prosecute the case as a felony. Brennan had turned the idea around when he found that the prosecutor might opt for a plea deal. He flew to Beaumont and joined a meeting between Apple and Paul Noella, an investigator for the DA's office. Noella explained the accidental gun charges in Texas were not uncommon, and the juries and judges tended to understand them, and that, well, the whole issue of accidental deaths was a fairly gray area of the Texas criminal code. In other words, the whole thing was looking like more of a hassle than a slam dunk. He arranged to bring Susie Flanike into Beaumont for a meeting with the private assistant DA in charge of the case. Among other complications, the ADA told them Mueller's gun was still locked in the lawyer's safe, and the lawyer was making noises about fighting efforts to have it turned over. The victim was important to everybody here, he said, gesturing around the table, and we're not going to let this thing get brushed under the rug. It is murder, so if you think we're going to forget about this thing, think again, because this is not happening. Brennan's anger can fill a room. After Mueller was sentenced, Brennan Apple went out for a celebratory lunch. Brennan offered, ordered a cocktail. Apple, who was on duty, didn't. They made plans to play a round of golf together in the courtroom that day. Susie Flaniken had a chance to speak to Mueller directly. "'I have waited over two years to look you in the face, eye to eye, and simply have the chance to speak directly to you,' she said. "'You would have never have came forward the truth. You murdered him. No!' You didn't intentionally seek him out to murder him, but you murdered him. With every lie you told, with every intentional, selfish deception, with every cover-up over and over again. You saw his body taken out of the room in that big body bag the next day. You knew you killed him. He meant nothing to you. Later, Susie told me that she watched Mueller's face as the sentence was pronounced, and that he had looked terribly shocked. That was good, she thought. He's shocked, but not as shocked as my husband was. That night in room 348, relaxing, smoking, watching Iron Man 2, Greg Flaniken could have not known what hit him in the moments before he died. Mueller knew exactly what was hitting him. You have met your match, said the small woman, staring across the courtroom at him, a study and controlled ferocity. I would have spent the rest of my life tracking you down, and I found you. Greg's murderer. I brought you to justice." That was a long story. I don't have much to say about the other heist that I was talking about because there's not too much information that I can find. But it was a how a Youngstown gang traveled to L.A. to rip off Richard Nixon and stole $30 million. In Cleveland, Ohio, it was one of the biggest bank heists in American history. On March 24, 1972... 30 million 30 million dollars was taken from the safety deposit vaults of the United California Bank in Laguna Niguel, California by a group of masked men. A group of masked men from Ohio. They were called the Decino crew and they had landed LAX just a few days earlier. That's a that's a huge heist. 30 million. Oh jeez. Anyway, but that other that other true crime story that was about um about Greg. And, you know, it's crazy how sometimes people don't come out with the truth because if all they had to do was just come out and say it was a true accident, my gun just went off and go bang on the door. Are you okay? Are you okay? If they would take time to do that, they would more than likely not even be persecuted. But then again, in general i can see why they wouldn't because you know of how this may look so i can see both ways but that was a story about the body in room 348 which was greg flaniken and how he was basically shot in his scrotum and it traveled up his entire body just from laying in bed can you imagine though, a long day after work and you think, yep, going to get up tomorrow morning, go to work, I'm going to sit back and watch a movie and have a cigarette, have my beautiful cup of root beer, and eat my candy bar. And then all of a sudden it's just all boom and you feel this big blow and then you stumble to the door and you fall over. Can you imagine that? And it's a gunshot, but you have no clue what was even going on. That's crazy. Anyway, that is it for today. I want to thank you guys for being here. Have a fantastic rest of your Thursday, and I'll see you guys in our next episode. Crimes are committed every day all across the globe. This was just a few of them. There is millions and trillions more all across the globe. The real question is, will you return for the next episode to hear more of chilling ice-cold crime? I'm your host, Austin, and there is new episodes coming every week, sometimes more than once a week, so you can get more stories and more crime to wring your ears off. Hey, ice cold stories of pure, true crime. Only here at Chilling ice cold crime